Hi, my name is Mariangela. I'm from Italy but based in Germany. And this episode is brought to you by MPW Membership. Did you know that all MPW members get access to monthly group catch-up calls with the rest of the MPW community? This is the perfect resource to help keep you focused on your goals and to give you support through your music production journey, no matter what stage you're at. This is a free feature for all MPW members. Take advantage of this awesome feature and so many more using the link musicproductionforwomen.com Slash membership. Uh, what am I saying? <laughs> This is MPW. 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 The podcast with your host, Zylo Aria. Cool. A podcast about music, music production for the everyday musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the MPW podcast. I'm your host, Zylo Aria, and today I am talking to Pete Dowsett. So really excited to have Pete here. So Pete is a producer and engineer and has worked with artists including Pharrell, Snoop Dogg and the Black Eyed Peas, just to name a few. And he is also a lecturer at Abbey Road Institute in London. So glad that you're joining us today, Pete. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks. So I guess it's morning for you. How's how's it been so far? Have you done much or having a chill morning? Uh, I've just moved house, so I was just kind of uh, unpacking everything. So yeah, <laughs> it's a, um, a little bit crazy at the moment, but other than that, I'm good. Oh yeah, yeah. Moving house, always always a bit intense. And I'm sure now, especially with everything that's going on, it's yeah, a few things to deal with. Well, it's the first time ever I've moved with uh, with gloves and a, a kind of surgical mask on, so that was a new experience. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh gosh, I wouldn't. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gloves would always make things a little bit harder, <laughs> I would assume. <laughs> yeah. So today we are talking about compression, but we will get into that in a second. So you've worked in quite a few different areas of music uh, it seems you you've worked in a lot of the huge studios around London which is awesome and you've also toured with a lot of big bands and done a lot of uh, work in live sound and in festivals and everything which is awesome and I'd love to hear a bit more about you know where it all began for you and how how you got into all of that. Uh, well, it kind of started for me in kind of early teenage years when I kind of picked up the guitar. And uh, before that, I was, uh, you know, kind of like a lot of young boys, I guess, it really into football and uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. And then, but then as soon as I picked up a guitar, like my world just almost overnight just completely changed. I was, uh, you know, and I guess like a lot of people my age, I'm, uh, I'm 34, it was uh, the band Oasis that kind of got me into music. But then from that, I just, it was just an exploration of everything. And I played in bands, you know, at school and then, and then um, did a music technology A-level and then went to university for, uh, and, and studied music production. And so... Mm-hmm. After I graduated from that, you know, with a maybe a little bit of overconfidence, I thought I was ready for the world and, and tried to take on too much and was in some ways quickly put in my place. And I realized, you know, how much I still needed to learn and do. So where I grew up in uh, in, in the Midlands in the UK, uh, just in a, in a city about 30 miles outside of uh, Birmingham, there was way more opportunities in live sound. I think that my plan was always to end up working main, primarily in the studio because I really liked the songwriting and the um, the creative side. But there was mm-hmm. some 
you know, decent sized touring venues in the area that I could work at. And I was kind of working in studios in the week, smaller studios. So this was kind of my first opportunity was with kind of almost like Hindus and stag parties and karaoke. It was all kind of really, really? kind of yeah, parties <laughs> and weird stuff, you know, really weird wow, stuff with okay. the with the occasional band. But it was really at the weekends when I was doing all of the live sound that opportunities were coming out of because it was just more in that area, you know, as you know, in so many different um, countries, you know, the big studios tend to gravitate to the big cities. So, you know, there mm -hmm, weren't the opportunities mm -hmm. there, but there was opportunities in live. So I took up live sound, ended up then getting um, kind of allured by the bright lights of going on tour and, and being, you know, on a, a tour bus and doing all that side of things. So, yeah, it was kind of a necessary detour really but you know I, I wouldn't take any of that back and really enjoyed uh, my time on the road but basically there was one point and this must have been about 2013 or so where I kind of did headlined with a band doing front of house at a really like massive massive festival and it, it was called Polish Woodstock which I did with a band called um ugly kid joe and they it's a big free peace festival in the middle of poland and um you know they estimate how many people there because they don't know but it was something in the region of four to six hundred thousand and i think it's only grown oh since then God. and i kind of you know <laughs> wow. headlining that as the sun went down massive rig that many people i was like i don't really feel like i've got that much to prove after that and yeah. i kind of was like well the only steps for me now are to really go into the uh, arena touring world and it, uh, and stadium touring world and if I did that I would never get back into the studio I didn't think so I kind of took that as a moment to draw a curtain on that and then I kind of moved down to London with no job nothing planned and it was kind of humbling in a way because I tried um, applying for lots of assistant engineering jobs or engineering jobs but to be honest, most of the really big studios, they like to hire from within. So I basically just took a decision to just, if I had to, start at the very bottom. I had some savings and I basically took a job as a runner at Metropolis. So that that was cool. uh, only expenses and paid. And I just, you know, worked really hard to just try and make a good impression and be around all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost treated it in many ways like a full time job so that I could kind of always be around for whenever the opportunity came. I kind of got lucky in some ways that, you know, a few months in, a last minute session came in and the I got on well with the receptionist there and he put me forward saying, if you can't get an assistant while well, Pete's here, and I'm really grateful to him for, for doing that. I was kind of in the background oh, wow. going, oh no, like, you know, but... Um, what have you done? <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah. like, so I kind of got lucky in that, that sense, but um, but yeah, that's kind of a brief history of where I've been. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And I always love this part of uh, the podcast, actually, because everyone's journey is so different. And I haven't yet come across someone that's been kind of doing the live sound thing in such a big way yeah. and then kind of going into into the production world after that. And yeah, how how is it kind of being in that big festival scene where you're I feel like it would be such an empowering feeling like what you're doing is what so many thousands and thousands of people are listening to. 
Yeah, well, I mean, one of the weird things about that is that the bigger the venue or the more open the space, the more people that's there, the bigger the rig, the more it actually starts to become more like a live studio recording in the sense of mm. you can do all of your little tricks with parallel compression and lots of reverbs. Maybe you've brought your own digital desk on tour with you and stuff like that. So, uh, And you've saved scenes and done all of that sort of stuff that... You know, just when I was doing all of that was just really when it was starting to become super popular for even the biggest acts to be traveling with digital boards and stuff. And yeah, it mm. became much more like studio recordings and much more refined. So there was a lot of trade off between the two. And actually, I used to just try and take it that I, I just wanted to make each performance kind of in some ways unique because it it's so easy with saving scenes for different songs and stuff that it could mm -hmm. be the same every night so I just try to get my hands on the faders and still move them around automate them a lot in real time to kind of wow. give it that like kind of conducted feel you know like you would yeah, yeah. you know when you're doing a mix with flying faders and stuff Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's, yeah, really cool. So, yeah, it's good to hear kind of how you got into the studio space. And uh, and Metropolis is such an amazing place to start, I guess. And, and opportunities like the one that you got, I guess, is uh, I was talking to to Dan Cox uh, not too long ago and uh, we were talking about opportunities and how you kind of just have to be ready for when something comes along and yep. and when it comes along it might not feel like the perfect time for you but you just have to kind of jump into it and make the most of it and yeah it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Yeah I mean it, it's one of those weird ones is that it's nerve-wracking at the time and maybe you feel like you're kind of a sink or swim moment but I think if you really you know have the best interest of whoever you're working with in mind and you're really trying your best and you're staying alert and you understand that the most important thing is to get the performance out of the artist and and make them feel comfortable even above all of the technical stuff you know you know treat it almost like in some ways a service industry like the big studios having uh, studio managers and runners and people that almost it's like a concierge service that all your needs are met and more and that things are able to move fast you know that 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 was one of the big things for me was learning to work that fast and not be thrown by anything that can kind of go wrong because even in the big studios you know channels don't work or things go wrong despite the best tech teams in the world so you just have to be <laughs> ready for that you know yeah 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 awesome Cool. All right. So we'll jump into our topic today, which is compression. And compression is something that I feel like I get so many questions about. And it's something that so many people want to understand, but is sometimes a bit difficult to wrap your head around what exactly is happening. So are you able to give me like a really short one sentence of what compression is? Yeah. I like to uh, think about compression in kind of maybe a little bit of a different way and I like to uh -huh. think about it as a way of changing the shape of a sound so a lot of people talk about controlling the volume of a sound where well, I like to think about its shape and I guess I could elaborate on that that further in a, in a little while <laughs> yeah okay cool um so I guess as far as what are you trying to achieve with compression do you have uh like a, a one-liner on that yeah, so what you're trying to achieve is something that's a little bit more uniform. So quite often in a musical performances, certain aspects of the sound's life cycle are too loud and other parts are too quiet. 
And sometimes you need to be able to adjust that kind of range between the loud and the quiet to make things more consistent. You know, the way that I was initially taught about compression, it's like having a little helper automatically raising and lowering the volume in the right places to make things seem more consistent. So, mm. oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah your personal volume exactly. yep. is what compression is. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> So one thing I wanted to ask you, Pete, was the different types of compressors. So I guess there are a few main categories that they fit into. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of analog compressors, you know, classic compressors. Yeah, I guess they're the main four types is that you have yeah. tubes, which are very rich colored. OK, quite tweakable generally. You have op opticals that are generally slower in attack time and typically you have a lot less parameters on them. They kind of set themselves in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. Then you have FETs, which are very, very fast, very, very aggressive. So, mm -hmm. you know, these are good on drums and stuff. And then you have the VCAs, which are like an all-round workhorse, very, very flexible, very clean, very cheap to make. So, yeah, that that's kind of a rough overview of those four main types. But obviously people abuse these compressors in many different ways. And, and you know, I wouldn't want to say use X compressor for X instrument because you can do a lot of different things dependent on what genre you're working in and also the type of song. Cool. Good to know. So I guess compression, you can find it in so many different areas of your work in, in production. Can you tell me about the different places where you might find it, you know, whether it's groups or tracks or, or master faders or wherever that is? Well, I kind of use compression everywhere. I'm, uh, th th there's a, a school of thought sometimes that, you know, you can really enhance the excitement out of a track by using a lot of compression and feeding it in underneath more naturally less compressed or uncompressed audio, and uh, which is called parallel compression. And, uh, you know, engineers like Andrew Sheps and people like that are really renowned for kind of working a lot with compression to create extra tone or extra uh, frequencies and harmonics that weren't there initially. And it kind of adds... And excitement. So I tend to, you know, add compression to control individual tracks to make them more uniform on the tracks themselves, you know, kind of hit compression a bit harder on extra tracks, parallel tracks that bring out all of the roominess and the excitement and all of the other elements that are usually like really low level in the sound and then blend them underneath. And I also like on groups of tracks like buses for drums and, and the overall mix to kind of create a sense of movement with things you know to try and r really enhance the the rhythm of the performance of the whole track so mm -hmm. like like you can kind of tell from that answer there's so many different areas and ways you can use compression to enhance what you're doing and it's not just as simple as controlling the volume of something when you really get into it yeah so it would be good to know I guess there are a lot of different types of compressors. Yeah. What are the main variables that you would find in most compressors and what would you say are their roles? Yeah, so looking at the kind of oldest compressors, quite a lot you had a more stripped down set of adjustable parameters and a lot of it was kind of in some ways maybe handled by itself or always dependent on the level and type of signal you were giving it. 
But, you know, these days you tend to find, you know, four or five main parameters. So you have the the threshold and this is the level at which compression starts to occur. So almost the trigger point. Mm -hmm. You've got the ratio and that's a relationship once the threshold is exceeded that the output changes compared to the input. So, so for instance, if you had a ratio of, of three to one, uh, three uh, colon one, that would mean that every time the signal goes three decibels above the threshold, it only allows the output to go up by one. So if you've gone three decibels over, the output is only one dB higher. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, the ratio... Uh, and then the, I guess the other most common ones are the attack and the release time. So th these are the kind of timing characteristics of the compressor of, well, how long does it take to start, you know, working to its full potential and how long does it take, you know, to go back to normal? Yeah, cool. So these are usually in milliseconds as well, the attack and the release. Yeah, yeah, cool. I wish people could see your like visual representation <laughs> with your hands because I found that really, really helpful. Well, I think that that's my uh, teaching mentality. I'm quite animated. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. And yeah, I'd love to hear actually your your sausage representation that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, I think, yeah, I feel like it's going to be useful. <laughs> when you're compressing something, quite often, you know, in natural sounds, you end up with a sharp peak at the front of the sound, and then that dies away quite quickly. And sometimes what you want to do is naturally elongate the sustain of a sound. So you're kind of making it fatter. So what you're really trying to do, and there are a couple of different ways to achieve this, is that you're trying to change the relationship between the transient or the initial burst of energy of the sound mm -hmm. and the perceived sustain. So one way you could go about doing that is to compress the attack directly, the transient, and then that's naturally going to reduce the range between that loud and quiet. And then if you turn it up back to its normal level again, then you end up with something that's fatter, it's longer, it's uh, more sustained. Or another way to do this is to actually like hit it really hard in parallel. So you leave the initial one alone. So you still get the natural transient. You still get all of the, the natural attack of it. But you're taking a much more squashed one like this really would be a sausage, you know, at this point. And then you blend yeah. that in underneath. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Awesome. Awesome. I guess the other thing that you find often on a few different compressors, which would be good to hear about is the makeup gain as well yeah that that's one thing that uh, confuses a lot of people because of the terminology used but the makeup gain is is simply just a volume knob it's a way to turn up or down the level it's not doing anything smart it's not uh, turning up by the same amount as you're reducing with the compressor it, it's just simply a volume trim now you know usually what a lot of people do especially when you're using it on um, a little bit more lightly is they'll try to give the same amount of makeup gain as the same amount of uh, gain reduction happening on the mm -hmm. compressor. So if you're doing three dBs of compression, you might want to roughly uh, increase the makeup gain by three to kind of get it roughly back to where it was before. Now, the harder you hit something, you might want to change that a little bit. But yeah, that as a good starting point, you might want to consider that. 
Yeah, no, that's good to know. You didn't mention gain reduction earlier. So is that, if you compare that to like threshold and the other things you mentioned, can you explain how that kind of gets into the compression? Yeah, so, you know, when you're using a compressor, you really need a handy way to know how much compression is occurring. So, so gain reduction is not a parameter that you adjust. It's the result of how much compression is happening from how you set parameters. So usually this is you assume that your input signal is zero and this is how much your output is being turned down by the number of decibels. So if you're doing 3 dBs of gain reduction, that means your output is 3 dBs lower than the input for while it's compressing. Mm-hmm. So the gain reduction, I guess, is then something that the compressor kind of calculates. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Depending on your parameters that you've put in using the variables we spoke about. Yeah, exactly. So analog devices will have a meter for it in, in your DAW. You might have uh, a meter on the plugin or maybe one built into the door that will show you how much gain reductions occurring and and again that's another good visual tool as well as using your ears to kind of judge what's happening and how much you're doing. Yeah cool so I guess from what you mentioned in theory compressors are essentially doing the same thing they're they're getting kind of the peaks of a particular wave file and kind of squashing that down so when people are using so many different types of compressors and you know different compressor plugins for different things what would you say is something that you need to consider of why would you choose one plugin over another yeah i mean a lot of it comes down to the inherent character that's added by certain old analog devices which have you know been modeled in in digital uh, forms now you know, certain types of, you know, electronic designs work well for a certain purpose. Like, um, you know, uh, there's a, a really well-known compressor called A1176, which is known for being super, super fast. So it's really, really good at reducing those transient peaks. Whereas there's another type of classic compressor called an LA2A, which is really known for not uh, having such a slow attack time, meaning it's not kicking in immediately. So it's not reducing the transient, it's reducing the kind of sustain and the other parts of the sound. And because of that, it works well as what's called a leveling amplifier. So it doesn't change the transient, but it changes the meat of the sound. And, you know, a lot of these different circuits and designs work well for a particular type of job. And they also have their own tonal color. So, for instance, the uh, circuit of an 1176 tends to have a more edgy, aggressive characteristic about it, whereas the LA-2A has a smoother characteristic, which has also some added, you know, high frequency content from the tubes and some low end weight as well. And so, yeah, dependent on the components themselves or how they've been modeled in the digital domain, they really kind of add a certain type of color and character and also have the timing characteristics you need for a certain type of job. Okay, interesting. So considering that that's, you know, the analog behind that compressor works in a particular way for the different ones, but theoretically, if it's now in a digital form, could you just you know, for the, was it the LA-2A that yeah. had the slower attack? Yeah. If you just kind of fasten that attack digitally, would it um, kind of do a similar thing as 
uh, as a different compressor or, or would it just be kind of the tonal reason that it's different? It's actually, you know, kind of nuanced between both of those things. So, you know, the LA-2A in particular is is what's called program dependent. So the attack and the release changes a bit dependent on the type of material and the level you put into it. So it's not so easy to just quicken the, uh, or longer the attack time and expect it to do the same. But however, having said that, you could have something like you know you've got your attack time set and then put maybe a distortion plug in after it so you don't you know to get a similar type of effect and you don't have to have all of these fancy tools to be able to do the same thing sometimes in the digital domain you could be using stock plugins and taking two or three of those stock plugins and getting a similar result so you know having access to all of these great emulations or the real hardware shouldn't stop you mm -hmm. from from making great music but it just sometimes you know, you have to work just that little bit harder to get it there. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And um, with so many different things that we speak about, you know, there's there's so many different types of them. You know, for for example, for compression or is it or reverb or whatever it is, there's just uh, so many different plugins. And I think a lot of people get kind of bogged down with trying to get their hands on as many as possible when probably if you know how to use a couple really well, that's better. Yeah, and it's really easy to get like choice paralysis. You know, if you go into a supermarket and there's 200 cans of soup, you know, <laughs> sometimes you can get overwhelmed with it and it's like that with plugins and uh, stuff now yeah. that I, I certainly have to kind of cull my plugin list every once in a while because it gets yeah. too big and I'm like... I. I don't feel like I can work as fast and I have mixing templates that allow me to have my favorite stuff ready to go. And, you know, a lot of production for me is is being able to make good decisions very, very quickly so that, you know, the artist doesn't even realize that there's a delay happening. It's almost already ready before they've even thought about what they need. And having track presets, mixing templates, a favorite plugin list, all that stuff ready to go, you know, saves saves a lot of time. And, you know, when you're first starting out, I think, you know, start with very simple digital tools that have a lot of parameters and learn to use them really well because you can get, like, overwhelmed with all of the options out there. So start with one thing, learn to use it really, really well, read the manual, you know, use it, learn it back to front, and then, you know, elaborate from there as you can. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And what you mentioned before about having everything set out and having your favorites and, and your templates and everything, I think that's really important as well from a workflow perspective. And um, on that, actually, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear about, do you have certain parameters that you kind of have set in your templates for your compressors, for the vocal channels, for example, or um, drum channels, anything like that? I mean, in my templates, I try not to have like things that are doing the mixing for me. There's the occasional things that are adding a type of quote unquote analog color that stay on. But a lot of the times with EQs and compressors and stuff, I've got them set to be neutral, but maybe their attack release, the ratio are set on values close to what I'd usually use. 
but the threshold is set so it's not doing anything. So I'm kind of setting it half from scratch every time and, and getting it right. I'm not putting my mix template on and expecting it to do everything for me. I think that's the wrong yeah, the wrong <laughs> approach uh, because, you know, every everything is unique. But just having the, the things that you know you like, you trust, you keep coming back to there and roughly those settings so that you, it's quick to start with it is good, but I don't necessarily think they should already be compressing or doing a lot. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Would you say that, are there any rules of thumb with compression with certain elements? Like for example, do do you want to always have a, a, a fast attack for a vocal or, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's a few things that, that come to mind. One is that if you're compressing your overall mix, if you have uh, an attack time that's too fast, you quite often kill a lot of the transient and the energy and the impact of the music. So what most people tend to do on an overall mix is to have mm -hmm. a slower uh, attack time, something in the region of 30 milliseconds, and then a, a fairly quick release time, something in the region of you know 100 milliseconds. And that way you're leaving the transient alone, but it's also releasing in time for the next hit kind of the next impact for the majority of tempos and that that kind of kind of cleans up and and what people call glues the mix together because it kind of makes everything feel like it's got a shared sense of movement so uh, that's for the overall mix mm -hmm. vocals tend to be extremely dynamic they're extremely expressive as an instrument but they also usually have to be right at the front they have to be the thing that you can hear the best at every single moment so you don't want the the singer to change their performance too much you want to be able to mold that signal and make it so that it's less peaky at the front so you have tend to have a compressor there that's solidifying the peaks and keeping them in check but you also want to mold the sustain as well so quite often you're using two or three compressors on a vocal chained one after the other in series to get that right amount of compression so it's able to compete with all of these other instruments that you have in a mix. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, with vocals, it's for me all about using several compressors with that have different purposes and different jobs. They're, they're molding the shape of a different part of the sound's life cycle and its journey. And also, uh, yeah, and with drums is to try uh, not to go for anything, you know, that's too slow because drums tend to be very transient and then they go away and decay very quickly. And if you're not careful, you can let the whole thing kind of pass through and what you're compressing is not what you think you're compressing. Yeah, yeah, no, good point, good point. And you mentioned before the glue compressor, which kind of takes me to the different types of compressors that you hear about, you know, there's the, the kind of standard compressor, the, there's the multiband compressors, the glue compressors. Would you say there are a certain category of, uh, or, or, or a certain number of categories of compressors and where would you kind of use them? Yeah. So, you know, there are two or three ways, I guess you could categorize compressors. So, uh, the first, being by the actual mechanism itself and we've kind of touched on that with you know the FET types the tube types the optical types so how they're actually operating and and the electrical circuit behind it mm -hmm. then you've got the actual kind of type of the operation that it's doing so as you've mentioned there's things like um, broadband compressors there's um, multi-band compressors there's DS's 
uh, things like that that are all operating on in a slightly different way. So a broadband compressor, which most people just call a compressor, is acting on the entire frequency range, whereas a multiband compressor splits the, free, uh, the uh, signal into different frequency bands. And you're able to compress each of these different frequency ranges independently of one another, which can mean you can get much more surgical with what you're doing. And you can, if you only want to compress the low end energy, you can do that with a multiband compressor. But it it does become very easy to kind of ruin the sound a little bit more with that type of compression. So the, there's a responsibility that, that comes with that. And then, uh, you know, a, a de-esser is a compressor that's only working on the top end, typically in the more sibilant areas where you get S's and and T sounds and very sharp sounds, particularly in a vocal or or sometimes used on cymbals and stuff. And I guess the final one is, is a limiter, which is a very, very high ratio compressor that is acting to really, really heavily, uh, you know, grab the signal. So, and not allow it to go above the threshold hardly at all. So yeah, mm. th there are those different types. And then finally, I guess you could categorize them by the role that they're playing. Are you trying to, you know, reduce the peak, the onset and the loud part at the front of the sound? Or are they a leveling amplifier? Are they trying to smooth out the sustain and the overall meat of the sound? So, uh, and then you've got things like glue compressors, which the job is to kind of give a sense of movement. So, so yeah, you can categorize, you know, how you're setting a compressor uh, based on the role that you want it to perform on your source material. Okay. Another thing is compression is used in kind of all areas of creating that music, whether it's uh, production or mixing or mastering. Can you talk a little bit about what is the role in those different areas of the compressor? Yeah, so, I mean, in a lot of times, tracking is about making that performance more consistent so you don't really feel it like that sound, you know, disappearing as it sustains too much or, or poking out in its peak too much, you know. So it's it's keeping that consistency, making it more contained almost so people tend to be a little bit lighter in compression during the tracking stage because it's very uh, difficult to you know undo that work and especially as you're first starting out people are a, a little bit lighter on the compression um, and, and then in the mix stage it's almost anything goes you can be really really destructive especially like I mentioned before by blending it in under, underneath a less or uncompressed signal mm. and you can really hammer it and bring out every last essence of its character so in the mix stage you know you can really be doing a lot of compression in a lot of different places to all do all of these different functions and mm -hmm. and it's also very highly genre specific you know in in a folk track you're likely to do much less compression than you would in a hard rock or metal track or mm -hmm. the type of compression you know you might create an artificial pumping side chained ducking effect on edm music with a compressor so the roles change really dramatically dependent on the type of mix that you're doing. And and then I guess in, in the mastering stage, it's more about making sure that, you know, you're hitting a level that's commercially acceptable um, for the types of formats that you're going to be releasing the music in. 
uh, and also to again enhance the um, the movement of the piece and making sure that there's no areas that seem kind of uh, flabby or, uh, or or too much. So yeah, so yeah, it, the mastering stage is more about like lighter use of of different tools to kind of have the last stage of quality control over it. So you're typically not hitting compressors anywhere near as hard on in the mastering stage with the exception of whatever your final limiter is at the end to bring the volume up. Cool, cool. Before we get into the uh, audience um, questions, I wanted to ask you what are your favourite plugins that you use kind of all the time? Is that with compression or is that just with anything? Uh, compression. With compression, <laughs> cool. So yeah. I really like a lot of the um, the classic uh, compressors they're called so uh, I really like the Uri 1176 so I, I really like the UAD emulation of that I like the UAD LA Teletronics LA2A but I'm also a fan of some of the more modern digital compressors so I'm really a big fan of the Waves MV2 which is a really good way to just squash things very very quickly and very crudely. It's only got about two knobs and one of them is like turning the quiet bits up and the other one's turning the loud bits down. So with two knobs I can really do a lot very very quickly. So and then I guess the other one that that springs to mind for me is the the FabFilter multiband compressor. Um, mm-hmm. I just find it really quick to only compress a certain frequency range with that because it, it comes preloaded with no bands enabled. So I just click and and get a band exactly where I want it without having to turn off all of the other bands or change things. So it's just really quick for my workflow. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, that's that's good. So we have a few questions for you from a few people uh, around the world. So we've got... Tyra White from the US. So Tyra asked, when would you use a limiter over a compressor? Yeah, so a a limiter typically when you want to be really aggressive with something. So either to really aggressively turn, you know, the volume up on an overall master or when you really want to, you know, handle the peaks of a sound very, very... um, in a harsh and aggressive way. So I quite often like to use limiters on a lead vocal because it really just uh, helps to control the dynamic range and kind of put it in a smaller range of, of volumes. And that really helps to make it sit on top of the mix. So yeah, basically any time that you want to turn the volume up massively or when you really want to control the front end of the sound. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. And then we've got Natasha Tian from London. So Natasha asks, how do you decide which sounds to compress? Yeah, that's uh, it. It's one of those that comes almost a lot with experience. But I think a good starting point is if you're you've got a sound that either sounds like wherever you're trying to move the fader to set it at a nice level and you just can't get it to where it wants to be. You feel like you're constantly wanting to turn it up and down. You know, that's a good sign that, you know, the dynamics of that particular instrument are not right. Uh, and, and then the other time that I like to use compression is when an instrument just sounds kind of rather dull or lifeless or boring or flat. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm feeling that, I'll drive it really hard in parallel to just get some more character out of a sound. 
So usually they're the two different thought processes. One is like, how do I control the shape of a sound and what part of its life cycle do I need to enhance to make that sit better? And then the other side is like, well, what sort of tone and color do I want to add with it to try and make that instrument sound more impressive and, and feel more important? So I, I guess it's about asking the questions of, well, what needs to happen to this sound? And if what needs to happen is, well, I feel like I'm having to move the fader too much all the time, then then that might be a sign of compression. Yeah, that's a really good way to to break that down, actually. And one thing we didn't really talk about, I guess, was using compression as an effect. You know, if you're using uh, yep. something like... Um, Oh gosh, when you're side chaining, yep, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're using it as a side chain or something like that, could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So often in um, EDM circles and, uh, you know, electronic music, what you might want to do is make the, um, the whole instrumental artificially like breathe and move and kind of suck the life out of it in time with usually uh, quarter notes or, or crotchets if you're using, uh, you know, the English terminology. And, you know, usually in a lot of EDM, you've got like a kick drum four on the floor on every kind of quarter note. And you might want to get that all, the whole mix artificially pumping to that. So a way to achieve that is to put a compressor on the overall uh, instrumental. Okay, usually you don't have that on the kick drum itself or the vocal but you have the rest of the music kind of sucking every time there is one of those kick drums. And you do that by using what's called a sidechain input. So you can set most, well, a lot of compressors to, mm -hmm. uh, to trigger off of not the sound that's being compressed, but an other sound entirely. And so in this case, that would usually be the kick. So you would, every time there's a kick, everything else is being compressed and you can get really weird, wonderful, nice effects if you set that nicely. And, mm. and, and it doesn't just have to be an EDM effect either. You know, a, a classic example of this is like the relationship between a bass drum and a, a bass guitar. And they occupy a lot of the same frequency ranges. So a lot of the time you might want the kick to be the more aggressive thing so that it's more transient, it like pokes through the entire mix and mm -hmm. then goes away really quickly, whereas you want the bass to be much more sustained. And so what you can do uh, to get the levels to sit better between those, um, rather than just EQing the life out of them both to try and give each of them a different pocket to live in, you could try and instead of carving frequencies, you could carve out time, okay? meaning that the kick usually would have the initial blast, but the bass would have the sustain. And you can do that by sidechain compressing the, the bass guitar to trigger off the kick. So every time there's a kick, the attack of the bass, you know, gets ducked a little bit. And that helps to give them a little slot in time to kind of live in and then makes those two instruments feel like they're better level balanced without having to be so drastic with other processing. Mm, that's really cool. Yeah, I guess in that way you can look at uh, compression or sidechain compression as a way to kind of make space for different things in the mix. Yeah, and that's it. And because fundamentally there's two ways that, you know, you can create more space without relying on things like effects processing. And that's you can either change its frequency content or you can change the time slot that it's living in. Now, obviously, there's a certain amount of 
overlap between the two. For instance, in the initial attack phase, you tend to have more high frequencies, whereas as the sound sustains, you get you start to hear more of the bass frequencies as the high ones die down. So it's not like there's this, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, but I, I like to think about sometimes, well, if I'm trying to create sp- space by cleaning out frequencies and that's not really doing what I want it to do, how about I take a time-based approach instead and see if that's working a little better? Yeah, cool, cool. And then lastly, we had a question from Claire Lord. So Claire asked a question that uh, a few people ask, which is what do you do first, EQ or compress? Or does it depend on the instrument? Yeah, I mean, my, my school of thought on that is my ears are drawn to whatever needs to be done as a kind of priority. Uh, and sometimes in a track, that that's just a bit of EQ and then I won't even compress it at all. But sometimes it's so dynamic that I don't even, I can't really even tell what frequencies need to be changed because it, it's, you know, too moving dynamically. So, so yeah, I, th- I think what's really important about this whole question, because it does get asked a lot, is, is it, it's about asking yourself what needs to be done. So if you have an end point in mind where you want to get the sound to and you can analyse and understand your starting point, it makes what needs to happen in the middle much easier to work out. So the question for me is less EQ first or compression. It's more what, how do I recognise and analyse what needs to be done to this sound to make it more how I imagine where it needs to be. And, you know, I guess the other point about this question is some people ask well do you like to put your eq first in the chain or the compressor first in the chain Mm -hmm. and it's about what order you put them in and 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 for me you know when i'm working in the box on a computer i'll leave a plug-in slot free for an eq but i'll do the compression first because especially when you're hitting things hard with compression it tends to bring out all of the ugliness out of a sound as well as bringing more energy. So things like mm-hmm. rumble in the low end, sibilance in the top end tends to become much more pronounced. And if you've already EQ'd it and then you compress it, quite often you find that it puts back some of the stuff you take out. So I sometimes like to compress on a second insert slot. And then after I've done the compression, made it more uniform and how I want it, I'll then do the EQ. But the EQ is actually before the compressor in the chain. It's just I've done the the compression first to kind of make sure that ah uh, yeah okay yeah that I get it how I want it but but that's not a hard and fast rule that's just something I I change a fair amount dependent on the situation yeah cool cool yeah that's a that's a good uh, way to think about it actually I never thought about that to kind of use the compressor as a way to find where the problems are. Yeah, so that's that's cool. So I guess that brings us to the end of what I wanted to ask. So thanks so much for your time, Pete. It's been amazing having you here. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, cool. So um, is it a busy day left for you today? More unpacking? <laughs> uh, no, I've actually got an um, an Abbey Road Institute lecture in uh, in a couple of hours to do. So I'm doing okay. them. All, we're all doing them all remotely at the moment because we're in the middle of oh, the yeah. 
the COVID crisis for anyone that's listening to this a long time after. (laughs) That that might explain the kind of joke about moving with uh, the face mask on, have a little bit more context. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so uh, a lesson to give there. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, cabling and wiring today. So all different types of uh, connectors and cables and all sorts of stuff. So so yeah, no, and I'm... uh, Really glad that you've set up this podcast. I mean, I think that I, I speak for everyone at Abbey Road Institute that we've we're really happy to see these initiatives starting to come out and 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 people you know championing a more equality in in our line of work because it needed to change and I'm I'm really glad that that it's going that way and you know the, the team at all of the Abbey Road Institute all work really really hard to make sure that 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 environment is as good as it could be yeah definitely definitely oh thank you that's that's really lovely and uh, I'm glad you feel that way and yeah I mean it's since I started this it's just been amazing getting so much support as well from from even Abbey Road for one of the projects that we did a few months ago and so all that has been really nice and really encouraging and is showing that things are moving in the right direction which is always a positive yeah so that's good <laughs> All right. Thanks, Pete. And I will talk to you soon and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.